0: Hello, and welcome to Tabling the Podcast. My name is Ariana Karp, and I am delighted to be here with a group of wonderful individuals who are going to take us through the lyrical history play, Richard II. Um, so I'd like us to go around, please, and uh, tell us your name, uh, where you are, who you're playing, and also if you have a relationship with this, with this play, um, what the nature of that relationship is. Et cetera, et cetera. Uh, So, Myri, why don't you start us off?
1: Well, <laughs> I'm muted. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm Myri Chanel. Um, I'm going to be playing Omerl, Green, Berkeley, Ross, Gardner, Exton, and Keeper, the Keeper. Um, I'm based out of Santa Fe, New Mexico, up in the mountains, um, and I don't have much of a relationship to this play at all. I've read it like twice. I've never seen it performed. I've never performed in it. I'm very excited to dig into it. And that's it. Fantastic,
0: thank you. Uh, Mike.
2: Hi, Mike Marcoux. Um, This is the first time I've read probably the whole thing all in one bit, but I think the first monologue I ever learned uh, with the help of some some lovely friends who were here in the room was from Richard II. So, and it's just, it's, it's, then one of my there's so much beautiful speech in this play, and it's uh, I'm really looking forward to to get digging down deep into it. So I'm uh, playing uh, Harry Bolingbroke, and in was uh, uh, Astoria, sorry,
0: <laughs> Wisconsin, Astoria, same difference, right? <laughs> um, Zoe Burke. All
3: right, I am Zoe Burke. I am also based out of Santa Fe, New Mexico. I am playing Mowbray, Bushy, First Herald, Fitzwater, Groom, and Lady, and my relationship with this play actually is thanks to you, Ari, because you got me hooked on this doing Henry the Part One. And then I was able to work further on it in an applied Shakespeare uh, graduate course, where kind of the continuation of the father-son relationship theme with Gaunt and Bolingbroke and then Bolingbroke slash Henry and Hal and all of that just absolutely fascinated me. So I got to do some research and writing on that. And I'm super hyped to do this now.
4: Fantastic. Zoe G. Hello, I'm Zoe Goslin, another Zoe that never happens to me. Awesome. (laughs) Uh, I'm reading Richard the (laughs) second, very exciting stuff. He says a lot of amazing, amazing things. So I'm super excited. I've seen this play. I saw it when I was in, when I was living in London and I'm a big fan of the film with Ben Whishaw and Rory Kinnear, Uh, the Hollow Crown one I really like. I mean, I love Ben Whishaw, so I think he's a fabulous Richard. Um, what else? Oh, I'm also in Astoria, Queens, not very far from Mike. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a beautiful play. Language-wise, I struggle often the pace and I struggle with the fact that so much is said about characters that you never meet, characters who are dead already. Pe- there's a lot of drama that sort of builds up off stage that it all comes to a head on stage, but I find it's sort of like, it takes a while to gear up into that. So yeah, it's still a play I love, but I think I'm always curious as to like how people make it really exciting and urgent and all those good things. Wonderful, wonderful. Nazla.
5: Hiya, um, I'm Nazla or Naz. I currently live in Philly and who am I playing? It's a great question. (laughs) I am playing Queen Isabel, Bagot, Carlisle, Serving Man, Willoughby, Another Lord, and um, my relationship to this play, I kind of like randomly fell in love with this play because I watched um, David Tennant, the National Theatre Live production, and then I watched the Ben Wishaw one, and then like I read it, and then I saw it uh, there was like the all POC female cast at the Globe that they did like a year or so ago. So like this play just kind of, I don't know, it's like something I didn't realize I was going to like when I first watched it. I was like, oh, David Tennant and something, whatever. And then it kind of just like keeps following me around. And now
0: I'm like kind of
5: obsessed with it. So, yeah. <laughs> it's like really strange. But yeah, that's my relationship to this play.
0: Wonderful. Uh, Steven. I'm
6: Steven Bennett. I'm also in Astoria, Queens at the moment. Uh, ironically, though I live in Brooklyn. I am playing Northumberland, Marshall, Scroop, Abbott, and Surrey Uh, and I have never seen or been in this play but I read it in college and I am so excited about it. I love it and the sort of like cascade of plays that 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 marches out of it. so I'm really excited to like be a part of, of, a, of a reading.
0: Thank you, Stephen. Amy.
7: Hi, I'm Amy Mylander. I'm in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, I've read this play um, informally at a reader's uh, meeting, and um, I've seen the play a couple of times. Um, I'm not um, wed to it, but I like the iambic pentameter. Um I'm hooked on the histories all the way through, so
0: thank you, Amy. Carol.
8: I'm Carol Farkas. I'm also in Santa Fe. I'm playing York, which I'm very excited about. Um I've been in this play, I've directed this play uh it's it is lyrical. the language is just is just amazing. It never ceases to astound and I think it's, it's sort of a combination of um, an investigation of honor, again, and, and just the most incredible dysfunctional family drama. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, Bill. Uh,
9: my name is Bill Potter. I'm based in Santa Fe, though I did live in New York City for 20 years. Um, I am playing John of Gaunt, uh, Salisbury and the Second Herald. And my relationship to the play is I, my undergraduate degree was in drama and I moved to New York to be an actor, but I ended up getting a PhD in English from the CUNY grad center. And I've been a college English and literature teacher for 28 years. And I've taught a lot of Shakespeare and a lot of poetry, but I'm um, remarkably ignorant about the early history plays and am delighted to be a part of this project. As I said last week at the reading of, um, of uh, King, um, who, Which king was <laughs> king, king John? Uh, the other one. <laughs> the other uh, king. king John. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, which I wasn't in. I was just listening in on that uh, reading. But um, Shakespeare seems to have invented the miniseries you know, with these linking plays and uh, characters that reappear and so on. And um, I'm particularly struck at the idea of secession, the way in which um, he handles in these plays this idea of who's going to take over the crown. And you know, as we're seeing what's going on in our country now, this is extraordinarily timely. Um, and I'm just very excited to be working with such an extraordinary group of people. And I'm very nervous as well.
0: <laughs> That's wonderful. Nerves are the best, because it means you care. That's my philosophy. Um, well. <laughs> Lynn, <laughs> will you uh, tell us about yourself?
8: I'm in Santa Fe and um, this is Lynn. And I'm, um,
7: I'm, I'm listening tonight and really happy to be here with all of you. And my history, I have no real history with the play
3: except that I listened to the um, public theater's radio production that they did, that they put on the radio during quarantine and just how as somebody said how the characters are marching out of this play into other plays i love that (laughs) you know that's uh it's 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 great that's and i'm really happy to be here thanks
0: wonderful thank you um i just wanted to say very quickly so i'm in northern california i'm ariana um i have been in this play twice i played richard ii when i was 17 Um, in a youth Shakespeare program in Madison. And it was a really, it was one, I played a lot of roles in this particular company over six years and it was one that stuck with me for a very long time. It was also a really cool experience because my younger sister, there were four casts of Richard II all rehearsing at the same time. And my sister Natasha was also playing Richard II in another cast. So it was really cool. Like we learned our lines together, but we also had different interpretations of the character and getting to watch someone else going through the same process was a really amazing, um, experience. Uh, and then when I was in drama school, it was, uh, another play that we, that we did for our history plays unit. And I was playing the Duke of York in that production and uh, the Duchess of Gloucester. So it, it was really fun to um, go through two incredibly different uh, experiences of being in the play and um, at very different points in my life <laughs> as well. Um, and I, I think I, I very much agree with with Harold Bloom, which is not something I find myself saying frequently. <laughs> I frequently <laughs> disagree with Harold Bloom on a lot of things, um, but he, I remember I remember reading this back when I was 17 and I was doing my little character research like his chapter about Richard II in his book starts off with Richard II is the most lyrical of all the history plays and I very much agree with that. I think there is something that's um, about Richard II that's almost like a proto-Hamlet type like just experimenting with soliloquies and, and monologues and um, it's so cool that uh, that you mentioned the the public theater I was just watching they had a wonderful um, event last night that I listened to which was about Hamlet and Black Lives um, and the resonance of their 2016 mobile unit production. So its I'm, I, these, these plays like Hamlet and Richard the second to me are kind of fusing together in my mind in this really, like, strange way. But I'm so excited to go through this play with all of you. And um, I think without further ado, we should just, like, dive into this text. I did want to say a little tiny thing at the beginning, which is about the sort of what's just happened before the play started. Because that, I think... You're so right, Zoe. That so frequently it can be kind of like, okay, there's this list of names. <laughs> like, who are these people, and why? Why is it important? And to me, the history plays work best when it when it is about family, um, when it is about these family relationships. So Richard's grandfather was Edward the Third. Um, he had a ridiculous number of sons that survived infancy for this time period. Like. He was very good at having offspring that survived, which was not something that a lot of people can say. Um, he had five sons, which of course means dynastic problems because <laughs> they're all going to want to be king. Um, so his oldest son was Edward, who was nicknamed the Black Prince, who was an incredible warrior who basically kind of made a name for himself during the Hundred Years' War and killed a lot of the French. (laughs) Um, He was probably called the Black Prince because he had very unusual black armor. Um, And he was kind of, uh, he became a legend in in later history plays. uh, In uh, I believe it's in Henry VI, part one, Joan of Arc talks about the Black Prince as being this sort of bane of uh, the French army. Um, but he died before his father, but his son, Richard II, was so, was now next in line for the crown. So he was put on the throne, I think, when he was like nine months old. I mean, this is, he was very young. So obviously, a nine month old is not going to be in charge of like budgets and taxes. So <laughs> there was a sort of protectorate of all these other four brothers, um, these uncles, very powerful uncles. Um, Uh, Two of whom we meet in this play. One is uh, John of Gaunt, who was the Duke of Lancaster, and one is um, Edmund of Langley, who was the first Duke of York. Um, uh, The other uncle that we hear about that's important to the beginning of the play, his name was Thomas Woodstock, and he was the first Duke of Gloucester. He was killed right before the play started. So this is one of Richard's uncles who was killed. And still historically to this day, we're actually not sure how he was killed or why he was killed. Um, But it's pretty clear that Richard had something to do with it and possibly this, this fellow Mowbray as well. But even historians are still like trying to figure out like, who killed the duke? He killed the duke. You know, it's it's a very, it's kind of a an ongoing question mark, as a lot of ongoing question marks to do with this period of history. Um, in the, the book that I mentioned last time, Shakespeare's English King, there's a wonderful description in the introduction about the way historians kind of see this as sort of this, this particular time period is kind of like, the stepchild that's very neglected. Like there's just not, there has been really interesting scholarship that's been done, but there's so much more scholarship to do with like the Renaissance and also previous to the Hundred Years War. It's an interesting, confusing, political backstabbing kind of time, uh, which is to me also the other reason why these plays are so relevant is like family and political allegiances that are made out of convenience and then broken like within minutes. Um, and how dangerous that can, that can be as well, and how we might find a resonance there with our own uh, political situations that we, we find ourselves in. So that is sort of what's happened right until this moment. Here we go.
4: <laughs> Old John of Gaunt, time-honored Lancaster. Hast thou, according to thy oath and bond, brought hither Henry Hereford, thy bold son, here to make good the boisterous late appeal, which then our leisure would not let us hear, against the Duke of Norfolk, Thomas Mowbray?
9: I have my leave.
4: Tell me, moreover, hast thou sounded him, if he appealed the Duke Malice, or worthily, as a good subject should, on some known ground of treachery in him?
9: As near as I could sift him on that argument, on some apparent danger seen in him, aimed at your highness, no inveterate malice.
4: Then call them to our presence, face to face, and frowning brow to brow, ourselves will hear the accuser and the accused freely speak. High stomached are they both, and full of ire, Enraged, death as the sea, hasty as fire. OK, I'm just going to beep right
0: there. Sorry, Mike. Um, I just right. wanted to
4: make sure, are we all
0: clear so far? There's some really interesting syntactical constructions about the way in which these characters are speaking right now, but um, you guys both read so beautifully. I really got a sense of of of, of what you were saying. Um, are, are there any questions so far? Um,
7: yeah, Are we pronouncing Hereford, Hereford, or, and Mowbray? It's a great, question. It's a
0: great, great question. Um, the way I have heard it, although it's it's funny, I was, I was watching, I've been watching snippets from a couple different productions and everyone has pronounced it slightly differently, which was very <laughs> unhelpful. Um, yeah. So I think I have heard Hereford.
4: Hereford, okay. Hereford. I listened to the, um, the public one right before this, and they changed it to Bolingbroke. So oh. I was like, how should I say this? And they changed it to Bolingbroke. So I was like, not helpful.
0: Not helpful. <laughs> too many titles, too many titles. He's got yeah. like, and Boling, Bolingbroke, or as actually my British director said, Bolingbroke. But I've also heard both ways. Um,
4: oh, God, has, What do we yeah. do? What do we do? What do we do?
0: I say Bolingbroke. What should I say? <laughs> I think say what, whatever, whatever you like. Um, okay. and, and, oh and, and when there tends to be a, the F-O is usually more like an F-U kind of sound. That sound is really rude. It's yeah. an F-U sound, but like Norfolk. Well, it when you
4: say it, Norfolk. Yeah, it
0: really does. It sounds more like yeah. that is, an, is a U sound. Um, okay. So for Hereford,
4: Norfolk. Hereford, Norfolk. <laughs>
0: It does kind of sound like you're saying Norfolk, Um, but yes, there you go. Why not? Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. Um, And thank you for hitting all those wonderful antitheses as well. (laughs) Um, Okay, so in comes Bowling
2: (laughs) Brook, broke, brook, brookie. In comes Henry. Many years of happy days befall my gracious sovereign, my most loving liege.
3: Each day still better others happiness, until the heavens, envying Earth's great hap, add an immortal title to your crown.
4: We thank you both. Yet one but flatters us, as well appeareth by the calls you come, namely to appeal each other of high treason. Cousin Herford, what dost thou object against the Duke of Norfolk, Thomas Mowbray?
2: First Heaven be record to my speech In the devotion of a subject's love Tendering the precious safety of my prince And free from other misbegotten hate Come I appell him to this princely presence Now, Thomas Mowbray, do I turn to thee And mark my greeting well For what I speak, my body shall make good upon this earth Or my divine soul answer it in heaven Thou art a traitor and a miscreant Too good to be so and too bad to live Since the more fair and crystal is the sky, the uglier seems the clouds that in it fly. Once more, the more to aggravate the note with a foul traitor's name, stuff I thy throat. And wish, so please, my sovereign, ere I move, what my tongue speaks, my right-drawn sword may prove.
0: Uh, Let not Sorry, Joey. I'm just my- going oh. to pause here for <laughs> one second to just talk about the the word "traitor," because I think it's really important to the scene to sort of understand what a traitor was. Um, a, a a traitor during Shakespeare's time was the single highest crime you could commit. commit. If you were accused of treason, mm, that was not a good place to find yourself in the penalty for it was worse than murder it was worse that it was just the betrayal of one's king or or country um was just simply the height of crime i think you can see this a lot with um dante's inferno the lowest circle of mm-hmm. hell is uh, reserved mm-hmm. for brutus cassius and judas right it's like the the traitors to to in in, in in his mind. The penalty was um, graphic and very disturbing. They were hung, drawn, and quartered if you were convicted of treason. And you were hung until you were almost dead, but not quite. Um, they then would chop off your manhood and throw it in a fire. They would disembowel you and then drag your body apart Um, In that's what quartering is, um, by four different horses. They would send each of those parts to different corners of the realm so that your soul could never be at peace because you were separated into all these different uh, locations. And then they would put your head on a spike outside of uh, London Bridge. So this was, and this was like, this was also publicly done. So people knew about this, so I, th- I guess all this horrificness to say that the stakes of calling someone a traitor are extremely high, um, and to to make this accusation is is not casual <laughs> at all yeah stephen did you did you have a question yeah but it 's interesting to me i mean
6: you know that immediately the f- the first thing Richard says is like is this gonna be a petty thing? Because like, if it's a petty <laughs> thing, like I don't want to hear about it, right? Like, I've been doing this some other time, yeah. Right? He's like worried about Bolingbroke wasting his, or you know, Henry Herford yeah. wasting his time. And Herford comes in and is like, gives no evidence, and is just like, he's a traitor. He's yeah. a traitor. I'm mad at him. By the way, I love you, King. But he's a traitor, yeah. and let me kill him. <laughs> Not like, here's why. News. Just what he did. <laughs> just he's a traitor, and that's it. Yeah. It's, it's a little bit of an odd argument.
0: Absolutely. I, I think there's a sense in which there is, um, he's getting everyone's attention with this first speech of saying like, I'm, I'm not joking, here I go. Um, because later in the scene we'll see he sort of enumerates his grievances uh, against Mowbray. But um, yeah, he's, as we will see soon, he's going to accuse him of killing both of their uncle. Essentially, but I think that's it. That's it's very well, it's very well uh, noted that it is. There's not a lot of evidence given. It's a lot of very lyrical language getting to accusing someone of, um, of being a traitor. Wonderful. Let's let's uh, see what Mowbray's response is to this accusation.
3: But not my cold words here accuse my zeal. It is not the trial of a woman's war, the bitter clamour of two eager tongues, can arbitrate this cause betwixt us twain? The blood is hot that must be cooled for this. Yet can I not of such tame patience boast as to be hushed and not at all to say? First, the fair reverence of your highness curbs me, from giving reins and spurs to my free speech, which else would post until it had returned, these terms of treason doubled down his throat setting aside his high-blood's royalty, and let him be no kinsman to my liege. Uh, I do defy <laughs> him, and I spit at him, call him a slanderous coward and a villain, which, to maintain, I would allow him odds, and meet him where I tied to run afoot, even to the frozen ridges of the Alps, or any other ground inhabitable, wherever Englishmen durst set his foot. Meantime, let this defend my loyalty. By all my hopes, most falsely doth he lie.
2: Pale, trembling coward, there I throw my gauge. Disclaiming here the kindred of my king, and lay aside my high blood's royalty, Which fear, not reverence, makes thee to accept. If guilty dread hath left thee so much strength as to take up my honor's pawn, then stoop. By that and all the rights of knighthood else will I make good against thee, Arm to arm what I have spoke, or thou canst worse devise.
3: I take it up. And by that sword I swear, which gently laid my knighthood on my shoulder, I'll answer thee in any fair degree, or chivalrous design of knightly trial. And when I mount, alive I may not light, if I be traitor
4: or unjustly fight. What doth our cousin lay to Mowbray's charge? It must be great that can inherit us so much as of a thought of ill in him.
9: Ooh, Wonderful.
0: I'm just, sorry. I'm just going to point out one thing, which is I think that moment of the when I I was kind of rereading this today in preparation, and I was realizing that's a huge moment when um, when Henry disclaims the kindred of the king. Disclaiming in this context means disowning or renouncing. So essentially, you're saying that you're giving up your place in the royal family in order to prove this, which is which is interesting. Because it also kind of foreshadows what you will be doing, which is disclaiming the kindred of the king and becoming the king yourself um, so there's there's a lot of I have a lot of <laughs> moments that here in my script where I just wrote, "Ooh, Freddie foreshadow shows up yet again," because um, I just see there being like a lot of a lot of moments where there's these seemingly kind of insignificant. Lines that that have a lot of uh, a lot of weight for what happens later in the play. That was awesome.
1: <laughs> I just have a I have a word question. Um, yeah, what is a gauge Ooh,
0: great question. Glove, right? It is. It's a glove that, um, and we're going to have a hilarious oh, scene yes. where, where everyone is throwing gloves at each other. And I think it's in act four.
1: Yes. I think so, it's at me, actually. Which, yes, <laughs> I think it is at you. I think it is. I
0: think everyone throws gloves at O'Mearl. So there
1: you go. Perfect.
0: Good. And like, it's important for me to know. Challenge. I challenge you. I just you. love
2: that. Yeah. It's, such a, it's such a great way. Of, it's like, here's my glove. Pick it up, bitch. Yeah, I, I fucking love that. It's fantastic. <laughs> true. All right.
0: It's like, I mean, I love that he says, then stoop, like stoop down and pick oh, yeah. it up. You know, it's just them it fighting words for sure. Okay. For sure. <laughs> Wonderful. Um. So tell us what you gonna prove, Mr. Mike.
2: Look what I speak. My life shall prove it true. That Mowbray hath received eight, thousand nobles in name of lendings for your highness soldiers, the which he hath detained for lewd employments, like a false traitor and injurious villain. Besides, I say, and will prove in battle, in battle prove, or here or elsewhere to the furthest verge that ever was surveyed by English eye, that all the treasons for these eighteen years, complotted and contrived in this land, fetch from false mowbray their first head and strength. Further, I say, and further will maintain upon his bad life to make all this good that he did plot the Duke of Gloucester's death, suggest his soon-believing adversaries, and and consequently, like a traitor coward, sluiced out his innocent soul through streams of blood, which blood, like sacrificing Abel's cries, even from the tongueless caverns of the earth, to me for justice and rough chastisement. And by the glorious worth of my descent, This arm shall do it, or this life be spent.
4: How high a pitch his resolution soars! Thomas of Norfolk, what sayest thou to this?
3: Oh, let my sovereign turn away his face, And bid his ears a little while be deaf, Till I have told the slander of his soul, How God and Goodman
4: hate so foul a liar. Mowbray, impartial are our eyes and ears. Were he my brother, nay, my kingdom's heir, As he is but my father's brother's son, now by my scepter's awe, I make a vow. Such neighbor nearness to our sacred blood should nothing privilege him nor partialize the unstooping firmness of my upright soul. He is our subject, Mowbray, so art thou. Free speech and fearless, I to thee allow. Can
0: I beep here for a second? Oh yeah, please, Carol,
8: yeah.
4: Yeah, I think it's really interesting
8: that after Bolingbroke, you know, disclaimed the kindred of the king, Richard comes back oh. and, and calls him cousin. Yeah. And, and now he's saying, oh, no, 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 not, not kindred at all. I, yeah. I, I don't notice it at all. I just called him cousin, but don't you notice that? Cause I don't notice. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there's, there's, um, again, it's, it's just, to me, we were, we were tracking in, in, in King John, in the first scene, how many times father and mother and brother are mentioned. It's like, an insane number of times. And, and I think that to me is like what, when you take the history plays as, as being about this empire, I think they become a little too cold and distant. But when they become these these family dramas, they become much more accessible. And, and as has yeah. been written a lot, you know, he's Shakespeare in these plays chooses the people that he puts very carefully. And this is a very different play from King Henry the IV, part one, which gives you a much larger slice of life, as it were, a sort of more encyclopedic look from, you know, my, my favorite transition is you go from the throne room to basically like a truck stop at 3 a.m. And that's one of my favorite transitions in the whole show, because it's like you've got these people with fleas who are talking about pissing into their fireplace right after you see the king, you know, yelling at some nobles. But this is one of the few plays where every single line is in verse even the gardener as we'll meet like everyone speaks in verse it's like this and king john i think are the the only there might be one other one but there's very few plays that are entirely in verse uh, most are a, a mixture of verse and prose so to me it's like it's very telling that this play is very much about the upper, upper upper echelons of the court and everyone speaks in verse for the entire play, including the gardeners and their servants. Wonderful. I also just wanted, as a little fun language thing for us to track, some of the words in this play that to me, really resonate are things like "unstooping," right "unstooping, unjustly." we're going to get the amazing verb later "unkinged." Um, Shakespeare like creates these words by just putting an "un" in front of them, and I think it's, it's really. The sense of who is included and who is excluded is a really big theme in this play. And um, it's something that I just want to track as we, as we go forward.
8: I, I always feel like by this point, you already feel like there are three levels going on. And one is the, the claims, the, the impassioned claims being made, and then the, the rhetoric that's being used to hold up those claims. And then there's this undercurrent like like what we were just talking about with the cousin and yeah. oh no, not me that that you feel like you're be you're instantly embroiled in this very confusing world where you, you can't figure out yet well, what's really going on here absolutely, absolutely,
0: and i i it's actually why I find uh the first two acts of this play very challenging, particularly act one but just as a as a starting point for a play it's like oh god where who are we where are we let's just get to the part where he loses the kingdom cuz that's where all the really memorable language shows up you know
7: <laughs> i think
4: i oh sorry was bill saying something
9: no no that's what i, was, oh, okay. I moved and that came
4: <laughs> <laughs> i also think it's kind of cuz i i totally agree i find the first two scenes like you know it's chaos when you're just jumping in but because you know the more you go through the play it it is just like everything is sort of at richard's whim i'm realizing and even in this first scene he's sort of egging them on for his entertainment is how i'm reading it anyway Mm. i Mm -hmm. or i don't know you know that's my interpretation just looking at it right now and it's funny because he's gonna make the call no matter what really um and he does but he it, like even just commenting, you know, how high a pitch his resolution soared. Like, yeah, oh, yeah. Was so expensive. <laughs> uh, and then he's like, "What do you say to that?"
0: Uh, yes, <laughs> like, he's
4: absolutely. Having fun with it until he like gets tired of it. And then he, I mean, we haven't gotten there yet. But until yeah. he's like, "All right, we're done here." Yeah, uh, yeah. Let's forget but, this.
0: And even yeah. the the pitch line, how high a pitch? I I sort of thought that was like how high his language is, but it turns out it's it's a It's a falconry term about when a, when a bird of play, uh, uh, play, (laughs) yes, a bird of prey, (laughs) um, I love it when Freudian slips are somehow like more geeky than they are, you know, anyway, um, a bird of prey goes up and swoops up right before it goes down for the kill. So there's, there, there is this, and that was a, a, a form of entertainment and a huge part of the sort of, high social life. So it's interesting. it's really fascinating. I think it's totally backed up what you're saying Zoe by the by the text of this sort of this is a spectacle that we're watching. Yeah. Um
4: and what Carol was saying about, you know, you're my cousin and then like, oh, he's nothing to me. What are you talking yeah. about? Just like pitting <laughs> them against each other. Yeah. yeah.
0: He's not my cousin. He's my father's brother's son. Yeah, like he's a no. It's <laughs> so fun. Mhm. Ah, oh, wonderful. Um so let's see what, uh, what Mowbray says to, to that, to all that.
3: Then Bolingbroke, as low as to thy heart, through the false passage of thy throat, thou liest. Three parts of that receipt I had for, it's Calais, right? Calais? Calais. Calais. Cool, thank you. Uh, dispersed I duly to his highness soldiers. The other part reserved I by consent, for that my sovereign liege was in my debt upon remainder of a dear account, since last I went to France to fetch his queen. Now swallow down that lie. For Gloucester's death I slew him not, but to my own disgrace neglected my sworn duty in that case. For you, my noble lord of Lancaster, the honourable father to my foe, once did I lay an ambush for your life, a trespass that doth vex my grieved soul. But ere I last received the sacrament, I did confess it and exactly begged your grace's pardon, and I hope I had it. This is my fault, as for the rest appealed, it issues from the rancor of a villain, a recreant and most degenerate traitor, which in myself I boldly will defend, and interchangeably hurl down my gauge upon this overweening traitor's foot, to prove myself a loyal gentleman, even in the best blood chambered in his even in the best blood chambered in his bosom, in haste whereof most heartily I pray your highness to assign our trial day.
4: Wrath kindled, gentlemen, be ruled by me. Let's purge this collar without letting blood. This we ascribe, though no physician. Deep malice makes too deep incision. Forget, forgive, conclude and be agreed. Our doctors say this is no month to bleed. Good uncle, let this end where it begun. We'll calm the Duke of Norfolk, you your son.
9: To me it make peace shall become my age. Throw down my son the duke of Norfolk's gage.
4: And Norfolk, throw down his.
9: When, Harry, when? Obedience bid, I should not bid again.
4: Norfolk, throw down, we bid. There is no boot.
3: Myself I throw, dread sovereign, at thy foot. My life thou shalt command, but not my shame. The one my duty owes, but my fair name, despite of death that lives upon my grave, to dark dishonor's use thou shalt not have. I am disgraced, impeached, and baffled here, pierced to the soul with slander's venom spear, the which no balm can cure, but his heart blood, which breathed this poison.
4: Rage must be withstood. Give me his gage. Lions make leopards tame. Yea, but not
0: change his spots. Take but my shame, and I resign my gage. I'm just oh, gonna go for it. pause right there for one second. I, I think <laughs> it's just important to note that boot here doesn't mean like a shoe. Um, boot here means like there's no alternative or no choice. Um, there's a really fun pun, uh, that Myrie and Zoe worked on in, uh, Henry the fourth part one about boots, the two different meanings of boots. <laughs> and then the other thing was this word impeached. It's one of these, uh, what, what Robin of the ISC will call these words that we think we know, but actually had a slightly different meaning at the time when they were written and impeached has, it has a similar connotation. Um, but in this case, it was specifically to do with a knight being publicly disgraced. It was like something to okay. do with chivalry and knighthood, um, which I think is just important to note that, that both of these guys are, are, are knights, they, they're fighters, they're professional fighters. And um, that uh, to be disgraced and to be publicly disgraced as is happening here was seen as a, a, a very big blight on their, their honor. And I love the lions and leopards. That's such a fun little little exchange. Um, I,
7: I um, thought it was um, interesting that Mowbray talks about for Gloucester's death, I slew him not, but to my own disgrace neglected my sworn duty in that case. Wasn't supposed to be guarding Gloucester? Um, yes. Yes. And, and so people, you know, there's kind of a mystery. Did he... Cl- you know, kill him? Did he make it possible for others to kill him? Or did he just fall asleep at the wheel? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Thank you
0: so much for bringing that up, Amy. I, I completely forgot about that. And I actually wrote something in there like, neglected your sworn duty. I think there's a kind of an ambiguity, like, did you neglect the guard duty? Or did you neglect to kill him because Richard wanted you to. There's like a wonderful kind of different people can read different things into that implication for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Choices. (laughs) Um.
5: I also just want to point out I love it like I love it when Gaunt is like, okay, I'm gonna end this, I'm gonna do like a little rhyming couplet, and then <laughs> it just doesn't happen. Even though like Shakespeare always does, it always makes me like really giddy. <laughs> 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 They're just acting like children at this point. It's like and I think in one of the things you sent us in Shakespeare's English Kings, they talk about how like Gaunt and them are like personified as kind of like like the calmer, more mature like, uncle-father figures. And it, like, just really shows in, like, the few lines he's already had. Okay, hi, cat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Now he wants to be on the computer as I'm talking. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so it just, like, really showed just, like, how he's, like, trying to, like, stop it. And, like, Richard, the person actually in power, is kind of, like, inflaming it, like
0: Zoe was saying. So that was really cool. Absolutely. Wonderful observation. Yeah. You always love, I, I love it when there, there's the, the rhyming couplets go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and then all of a sudden they stop, and you're like, ooh, what changed? <laughs> Did we run out of rhymes? Like, what's going on? Um, let's do that wonderful uh, Lions Make Leopards Tame again, because that's just such a fun
4: little bit. Rage must be withstood. Give me his gauge. Lions make leopards tame.
3: Yea, but not change his spots. Take but my shame, and I resign my gauge. My dear dear lord, the purest trees in mortal times afford is spotless reputation, that away, men are but gilded loam or painted clay. A jewel in a ten time barred up chest is a bold spirit and a loyal breast. Mine honour is my life, both grow in one. Take honor from me, and my life is done. Then, dear my liege, mine honor let me try. In that I live, and for that will I die. I just
4: got that, actually, sorry. The- <laughs> <laughs> the lions make leopards tame. so is he referring to himself as a lion? Okay, great. <laughs> Sorry. I'll, well, I'll we'll,
0: we'll get into some of the ways in which Richard figures himself as so many things, including mm-hmm. Helen of Troy in the deposition scene, which I think is like <laughs> one of my favorite things ever. Um,
4: yeah. <laughs> great. Sorry, I'll continue. Okay. Cousin, throw up your gauge. Do you begin?
2: O God, defend my soul from such deep sin! Shall I seem crestfallen in my father's sight, or with pale beggar fear impeach my height before this outdared dastard? Ere my tongue shall wound my honor with such feeble wrong, or sound so base a parl, my teeth shall tear the slavish motive of recanting fear, and spit it bleeding in his high disgrace, where shame doth harbor even in Mowbray's face.
4: We were not born to sue, but to command, which since we cannot do to make you friends, be ready as your lives shall answer it, at Coventry upon St. Lambert's Day. There shall your swords and lances arbitrate the swelling difference of your settled hate. Since we cannot atone you, we shall see a justice free. Lord Marshal, command our officers at arms, be ready to direct these home alarms.
0: Wonderful, thank you all. Fantastic. Any, any thoughts before we move on to scene two?
4: I love that ending yeah. because I feel like it's like building and building and building. And then at the end, Richard's just like, oh, the toxic masculinity is so boring. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so bored now, like we get it, we're both manly men. So That's I love that It's like, whatever, we're gonna deal, this is my decision. <laughs> if you guys wanna fight, <laughs> I, I yeah. actually, hi Liam, welcome. Hi, um, sorry,
0: <laughs> sure, I wasn't expecting. No, yep. uh, no worries, welcome, welcome. Um, I, I was actually just watched act one of, uh, it's up this week, if, if, if anyone wants to watch it on, on YouTube, of Fiona Shaw playing Richard II from the, um, the production of her from the early 90s. Um, and she's, a, she's such an interesting sort of take, like she clearly just has an abhorrence to, to bloodshed in the, in the scene coming up and it's like, everyone's like, yeah, yeah, kill him, kill him, kill him. And then she's like, no, I can't watch this. I don't want to watch this, you know? So I think there's, there's a really interesting, um, there's something very elevated about, about Richard. I don't, I don't think Richard's a knight, um, in the same, in the same kind of way.
4: Um, I love that. Cause I love that it's up to interpretation, but it's clear that there's a shift. It's clear yeah. that there's like something that makes him switch. Absolutely. I, yeah.
6: Absolutely. I think like it's interesting to me that so much of, of this is like the limits of Richard's power. And this scene is all about the men making clear that their own dignity, honor, self definition is more important to them than their loyalty to the king. Right, <laughs> yeah. The king orders them to like put it like guys chill out we'll figure it out like put it aside and they're like absolutely not <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I cannot define what i am i'm gonna fight this dude That's
0: yes. a an odd thing absolutely i think and that it, it goes to say that um though richard will constantly linguistically figure um himself as being this kind of you know, he has descended, God has descended him onto the royal throne. Um, It's so clear from this and all the history plays that you couldn't really be a successful king unless you have the nobility backing your claim to the throne. As soon as you lose their support, you lose your kingdom. It's like, it's much more kind of (laughs) about secular power than it is about (laughs) ecclesiastical support, um, for sure. Uh, I also wanted to say in the, in the David Tennant uh, uh, version, they started with the scene that we're about to... Um, they, they, they flipped the, the order so that the scene that we're about to go into with uh, the Duchess of Gloucester and Gaunt was the first scene of the play. And that there was the Duchess of Gloucester was mourning over the, the coffin of her husband as the audience came in. She was just there. And then she looked up and they started the scene. And it was Jane Lapotere, which is like amazing for anyone who's seen playing Shakespeare. Yeah, anyway, let's, let's get into it. Totally new scene, private scene, very <clears throat> different from the scene that we just saw. And some amazing uh, linguistic fireworks about to uh, be lit here.
9: Alas, the part I had in Woodstock's blood doth more solicit me than your exclaims to stir against the butchers of his life. But, since correction lieth in those hands which made the fault that we cannot correct, put we our quarrel to the will of heaven, who, when they see the hours ripe on earth, will rain hot vengeance on offenders' heads,
7: finds brotherhood in thee no sharper spur, hath love in thy old blood no living fire? Edward's seven sons, whereof thyself art one were as seven vials of his sacred blood, or seven fair branches springing from one root. Some of those seven are dried by nature's course. Some of those branches by the destiny's cut. But Thomas, my dear Lord, my life, my Gloucester, one vial full of Edward's sacred blood, one flourishing branch of his most royal root is cracked. And all the precious liquor spilt Is hacked down, and his summer leaves All faded by envy's hand And murder's bloody axe. Ah, Gaunt, his blood was thine, That bed, that womb, that metal, that self-mold That fashioned thee made him a man. And though thou livest and breathest, Yet art thou slain in him. Thou dost consent in some large measure to thy father's death, in that thou seest thy wretched brother die, who was the model of thy father's life. Call it not patience gaunt, it is despair. In suffering thus, thy brother to be slaughtered, thou showest the naked pathway to thy life, teaching stern murder how to butcher thee that which in mean men we entitle patience is pale, cold, cowardice, and noble breasts. What shall I say? To safeguard thine own life, the best way is to venge my Gloucester's death. Thank you
9: so God much, is the-
0: Amy. That was so wonderful. Sorry, sorry about that, Bill. I just wanted to, to no go problem. through this incredible image that is that she re- repeats and I thought you did so beautifully at, at holding the image through the speech. Um, Cause I, I remember when I was working on the speech, I found it very, very difficult to hold this, um, these two images, right? The seven vials of sacred blood and the seven branches flourishing from one root, but then she keeps breaking them up and she keeps taking the images apart and having them and having them, but then they, they kind of come together. But I, I, I just, it's such an incredible speech. Um, I also, in, in my script, I ended up capitalizing envy and murder because I think, uh, frequently that's one of the things I'm going to do with our scripts is, is keep more of the capitalizations that are in the folio, because I do think to a certain extent they can be random, but frequently they tell you who and what the character is talking about in a way that, um, that gives you subjects that might be an image, but but that that make it very clear the what of what the character is uh, talking about. Uh, did did you have any thoughts going going through that speech, uh, just about the speech in general?
7: Um, her three big blocks. I kind of sectioned them off. That in this first, she's they've been talking about this before. I I I get this feeling that. Off stage, they started this conversation. Um, and she's trying to reason with him. Hey, that's your brother, you know, part of you, part of your father. Um, trying to reason, um, getting maybe angrier by his, his posture at the time. And then this second part, she's like, okay, if you're not going to do it, then I'm going to say, you know, Bolingbroke, go get him. Herford, you know, got this guy. Uh, and, then, and then at the end, it's almost like she becomes, like, desolate is one of her last words. It's like mm. she's desolate. It's, it's, I can't reason with my <laughs> brother-in-law. I can't, he's not going to do anything. Family is not first with him. It's oh golly, it's Richard and I can't say anything and so I'm not gonna say anything. So this this scene is kind of is different forms like you know, the seven stages of death almost. Um, yeah. you know. You oh, I met, love that. Um and, and yet but, another
8: case of a woman knowing what needs to be done and the man just not having the guts to <laughs> do. <dip.
7: laughs> Something we will see. Well he does frequently. explain in the next piece. Yeah why. And,
9: he, I'm the the next speech, it does. Sorry, go on, Amy. Oh,
7: no. Go ahead, Bill.
9: Sorry. <laughs> well, no, just uh, that um, the next speech is, you know, he's enthralled to this old idea of the king being, you know, the, the uh, arbiter of the divine providence. And we don't, you know, to challenge a king is to, uh, you know, uh, fuck around with God and all that kind of stuff. And um, he's very much uh, old fashioned, shall we say.
7: Yes. Old school, old school politics.
9: Yes.
7: (laughs) But again, I I love that you brought
0: up the appeal is to family and how, and how strong those, those ties should be, ought to be, which is something the women in history plays are constantly talking about. Um, It's like, come on, like, this is family we're talking about. Um, And it's, there's usually a much more sort of divine right of Kings or dynastic or, empire-driven argument from the, from the male side. So it's, an, it's definitely an interesting thing to track. There are very few women in this play, yeah. um, and all of them have, have very interesting perspectives on uh, family. And, and I also have always felt that in Shakespeare, the, the women, if you want to know what the cost of all these wars and upheavals are, you just look at the women, and they will always tell you what the cost is. Um, and mm-hmm. they, they talk about the cost in a much more upfront way, which is its own thing. <laughs> um, let's keep going.
9: <laughs> God is the quarrel. For God's substitute, his deputy, the anointed in his sight, hath caused his death. The which, if wrongfully, let heaven revenge. For I may never lift an angry arm against his minister.
7: Where then, alas, may I complain myself?
9: To God, the widow's champion in defense.
7: Why, then, I will. Farewell, old gaunt. Thou goest to Coventry, there to behold our cousin Hereford and fell Mowbray fight. Oh, sit my husband's wrong on Hereford's spear, that it may enter Butcher Mowbray's breast. Or if misfortune miss the first career, be Mowbray's sins, so he break his foaming courser's back and throw the rider headlong in the lists, a caitiff recreant to my cousin Hereford. Farewell, old Gaunt. Thy sometime brother's wife, with her companion, grief, must end her life.
9: Sister, farewell. I must to Coventry. As much good stay with thee as go with me.
7: Yet one word more grief boundeth where it falls. Not with the empty hollowness, but wait. I take my leave before I have begun, For sorrow ends not when it seemeth done. Commend me to thy brother, Edmund York, Lo, this is all. Uh, Nay, yet depart not so, though this be all, Do not so quickly go. I shall remember more. Bid him, oh, what? With all good speed at Pleshey, visit me, alack. And what should good old York there see? de lodgings and unfurnished walls, and couple the offices untrod trod stones? And what here therefore welcome but my groans? Therefore commend me. lend not there to seek out sorrow that dwells everywhere, desolate, Desolate will I hence and die. The last leave of thee takes my weeping eye. Hey, thank
0: you so much. Um, I, I
7: wanted to point out a, a fun, weird,
0: nerdy, um, uh, rhythmic thing with uh, the second to last line that she did so beautifully. Desolate, desolate, will I hence and die. That is a, a, a sort of not fairly common, uh, what's called a headless line. Which is a line of iambic pentameter that's missing the first syllable, so that's why it's called a headless line. Um, and it's it's not uh, something that happens very frequently in in Shakespeare in terms of the rhythm, but sometimes it does. And it's it always it's almost like something's being caught. Um, I feel like that there's something um, has been caught by the uh, the character. And then I also just wanted to point out there's those unwords again. Unfurnished walls, unpeopled offices, untrodden stones, which even though it 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 is it, talking about emptiness to me just like conjures up such a vivid image in my head of like people seeing the people and then them being unpeopled anyway. Yeah. Yes, so thank you all so much. Uh, Carol, unfortunately, had to leave us. She has yet another um, Zoom rehearsal to go to, but she will join us uh, next week. Uh,
7: I, wanted to, I wanted to say I did see this um, Richard II in Ludlow um, outside the uh, castle and the Castle Keep, and this scene is kind of, you know, you just stand there, you know, you, you see it done and people just stand there and they talk to each other and they walk off the stage. At Ludlow, they both came in together and Gaunt walked to one side of the stage and the Duchess walked the entire time in concentric rectangles on the stage until oh. she hit the center and then she traced her step back and she was walking, it was like a death March almost. Wow. And she hit the exit exactly, you know, uh, The Last Leave of Thee Takes My Weepy Night. She hit that and exited the stage. It was <laughs> incredible. It <sighs> was the best, the best staging. They had very good staging in that play, but that was <laughs> wow. incredible, I thought.
0: That's amazing.
7: <laughs> and and, and so, so
0: sort of ritualistic, yeah. Going through the sort of ritual of grief and, and wow, that's wonderful. Yeah. And then those stones were in fact un, untrodden after yeah. she had after she had left them. That's so magical. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Thank and, you, Ivy. Like, I,
1: I particularly wanted to just take a moment to appreciate the uh line for sorrow ends not when it seemeth done. Mm. Uh what a true Line um, that there are multiple expressions of grief, uh, and as Amy talked about earlier, the multiple stages sort of feel acknowledged here. Uh, that not all of them are as visible as others, and I don't know. I just uh, that line really like rung true to me. Uh, mm. I just thought that was beautiful. Love it. Moving on to
0: the list. Um, Just something that I want to offer as a thought is making decisions about which of these conversations are private and which are public. I think there's a lot of choices to be made about, you know, when Bolingbroke is saying farewell to his father, is that a private moment? Is that a public moment? It kind of changes the kind of speech, um, uh, depending on what decision you make there. So have fun, have fun making those decisions. I guess that's what I will (laughs) offer up.
6: My lord Armel, is Henry Hereford armed?
1: Yea, at all points, and longs to enter in.
6: The Duke of Norfolk, sprightly and bold, stays but the summons of the appellate's trumpet.
1: Why then, the champions are prepared, and stay for nothing but his majesty's approach.
4: Marshal, demand of yonder champion the cause of his arrival here in arms. Ask him his name, and orderly proceed to swear him in the justice of his cause.
6: In God's name and the king's. Say who thou art. And why thou comest thus knightly clad in arms, against what man thou comest, and what thou quarrel. Speak truly on thy knighthood and thy oath, and so defend thee heaven and thy valor.
3: My name is Thomas Mowbray, Duke of Norfolk, who hither come engaged by my oath, which God defend a knight should violate, both to defend my loyalty and truth to God, my king, and my succeeding issue, against the Duke of Hereford that appeals me and by the grace of god in this mine arm to prove him in defending of myself a traitor to my king my god and me and as i truly fight defend me heaven
4: marshal ask yonder knight in arms both who he is and why he cometh hither thus plated in habiliments of war and formally formally according to our law depose him in the justice of his cause
6: what is thy name and wherefore comest thou hither before King Richard in his royal lists. Against whom comest thou, and what is thy quarrel? Speak like a true
2: knight, so heaven defend thee. Harry of Hereford, Lancaster, and Derby am I, who ready here do stand in arms, to prove by God's grace and my body's valor, enlists on Thomas Mowbray, Duke of Norfolk, that he's a traitor foul and dangerous. To God of heaven, King Richard, and to me, and as I truly fight, defend me heaven.
6: On pain of death, no person be so bold or daring hardy as to touch the
2: lists, except the marshal and such officers appointed to direct these fair designs. Lord Marshal, let me kiss my sovereign's hand and bow my knee before his majesty. For Mowbray and myself are like two men that vow a long and weary pilgrimage. Then let us take a ceremonious leave and loving farewell of our several friends.
0: So I just wanted to to pause there and just say that there's such a ritual feeling to this like there's such a formality at the beginning here and just a fun uh, the just a fun little language thing that when uh Mulberry says that appeals me appeals me here means accuses me um it's just a, a very antiquated form of of the word and I also just wanted to to point out in a couple lines we're going to get this wonderful line that I I had this I was like, oh my God, I didn't even realize this is another foreshadow. Um, when King Richard says, we will descend and fold him in our arms, it's such a foreshadow of in act three, he's gonna have this whole thing about coming down and he's coming down to Bolingbroke. So I thought that was just a really, another fun moment of foreshadow that happens in the, in the text. All right, it's
4: nerd moment. Also, cause it is so formal. Like everybody knows what's about to happen. So it's funny that, it's funny that Richard is like, ask who this guy is, what (laughs) he's right here, what, like, the formalities of it are kind of, I don't know, I can't tell what, I don't know, I'm curious as to, like, why, like, why he even has to say anything, unless it's just he wants to hear them, like, appeal to him, you know what I mean? Like, well, what do you have to say to me about why you're here, and, you know, like... Why? Why are we here today? It's like a parent scolding, you, like, and why are we here today? Like, how did we get? And why here? are we in timeout? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it it's, sort of sounds like that it,
1: entertainment thing you were talking about earlier, too, Zoe. like, yeah. um, like, yeah, I'll just have these people talk for me a little more. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: it's funny. It almost reminds me of the uh, the the first scene with Bottom and Peter Quince in midstover where it's like, now read the names of the players. Like, blah, blah, blah. Now proceed. <laughs> it's just like, oh, okay, well, I'll
1: do that now. <laughs> Except gotta- nobles take themselves entirely too seriously, right? You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> for them, it's real. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's I guess Peter definitely- Quince, he's rather real, too. For- <laughs> <laughs>
0: Absolutely. There's definitely a way in which I think this could be really comical. Like, I think oh, you yeah. could stage this in such a way that, like... Like I, I remember that I love that Ben Wishaw like brought his pet monkey with him to mm-hmm. this. Like he was like feeding the monkey while they were like <laughs> saying about I'm here to fight, and he was just like, mm, "We're <laughs> monkey food," you know. Like it, it's just there's something so like, it doesn't cost him anything, you know. In a in a strange way, it's costing these men like their lives and their honor and their name. But I like at this point, it's not costing him anything, which is I think such a. Yeah, my my uh, mentor when I was a kid always used to say about Richard II. He said, Why Why this is such a good play? It's a play about a bad king that becomes a wonderful victim." Um, and Ooh. I always I always loved that because I think I think there is something. He's much better as an imprisoned <laughs> king than he ever was as an actual ruler in the, in this play. He's so mu- he has so much more self awareness, and that transformation happens when he loses power. And I yeah, have that.
1: anyway, and <laughs> that in my notes actually is about like, I, from that very first scene that we were reading through and then it just seems to follow through here is like, my main observation about Richard so far, uh, not coming in with a whole lot of knowledge of the character of the play is that he just seems, he seems very disconnected from the, the stakes. These two men about to fight. I, I was glad you clarified the the stakes of being a traitor and what that meant, like for uh, for Mowbray. Mowbray, because Mowbray. Seemed, but yeah, <laughs> Mowbray. Uh, You say Mowbray, I say. Um, <laughs> but you know, because uh, and what Zoe said got me thinking about it too. With the idea of him sort of playing these men against each other, is that it seems like he doesn't really grasp how desperately important this could be to someone. You know for for these men it is potentially their lives and at least their standing in society which is very important to them that are on the line and that doesn't seem to register to him um yeah
6: well and they're also doing it for him right like nominally it's their allegiance to the king i mean that's why you yeah. call him a traitor and he i mean he'll get into the divine right of kings later but he doesn't see traitors as a threat which is ridiculous right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it is interesting.
9: interesting. Yeah.
2: Equal, right, which is why Bolingbroke's <clears throat> going to get fucking pissed. Yeah. <laughs> a qu- question on the, like, R- Richard, at this point, and maybe I'm wrong, but he knows that he's made up his mind that he's going to banish them both and end this, right? Because like, later he, he talks to, uh, to, to Gaunt and is like, I'd let you be a judge on this. Mm. So at, at this point, does he know that he's made up his mind they're not actually going to fight and kill each other?
0: I think that's totally up to interpretation, actually, because I, I could see, there's there's the moment in a, in, um, there's an actual stage direction from the folio, a long flourish, <laughs> during which King <laughs> Richard and his council withdraw to confer and then come forward. So it's possible that he makes the oh. decision when he throws it down. And that's when, because Gaunt would be one of his top advisors, they would go, I, I always see them, I've watched the West Wing too many times, it's like going to the war room <laughs> and like talking about, okay, so what are the pros and cons of this? Are we going to go forward with this? And that, so I think, but I think there is also definitely a world and an interpretation where, where Richard goes into this knowing that, that he will stop it. But I, but why does he stop it? And I think we'll, we'll get to that as well yeah. as we... Because that, that's, that's always a, a big question mark, I
4: think. I mean, why is it happening yes. at all? Exactly, like,
1: yeah. I was good. Like, if
4: he, knew, if he does know that he's going
1: to stop yeah. it, like, yeah. why go through the whole thing? For right. But also, if involved, yeah. like, if he was
4: involved. Yeah. That's what I really struggle with in the beginning of this yeah. thing. like, but why?
9: These are <laughs> fucked up people.
4: yeah Yeah. incredible a lot of a lot of in the family yeah
0: absolutely but I think I think one way of us of us looking at it is what does Richard lose if Bolingbroke loses and what does he lose if Mowbray loses because I think to me that is that kind of is this is the solution is that in no way does this end well for him politically if his cousin loses that might be a good thing, but I think he kind of likes his, I don't know. Maybe he likes his cousin. I don't know. But if Mowbray loses, then it also gives Bolingbroke power that he doesn't want Bolingbroke to have. Um, so that I think there's, it's kind of like either I lose or you win kind of a, <laughs> and maybe that's something that he's, that he's kind of figuring out during this, or it's something that, uh he's been thinking about. I think there's so many different interpretations into, into
6: that. The appellant in all duty greets your highness and craves to kiss your hand and take his leave.
4: We will descend and fold him in our arms. Cousin of Hereford, as thy cause is right, so be thy fortune in this royal fight. Farewell, my blood, which if today thou shed, lament we may, but not revenge thee dead.
2: Oh, let no noble eye profane a tear for me, if I be gored with Mowbray's spear. As confident as is the falcon's flight against a bird, do I with Mowbray fright. My loving Lord, I take my leave of you. Of you, my noble cousin, Lord Amorley. Not sick, though I have to do with death, but lusty, young, and cheerily drawing breath. Lo, as at English feasts, so I regret the daintiest last, to make the end most sweet. O thou, the earthly author of my blood, whose youthful spirit in me regenerate, doth with a twofold vigor lift me up to reach at victory above my head. Add proof unto mine armor with thy prayers, and with thy blessing steal my lance's point, that it may enter Mowbray's waxen coat and furbish new the name of John gaunt even in the lusty havier of his son.
9: God, in thy good cause, make thee prosperous. Be swift like lightning in the execution, and let thy blows, doubly redoubled, fall like amazing thunder on the cask of thy adverse pernicious enemy. Rouse up thy youthful blood, be valiant, and live.
2: Mine innocence in St. George to thrive
3: however god or fortune cast my lot there lives or dies true to king richard's throne a loyal just and upright gentleman never did captive with a freer heart cast off his chains of bondage and embrace his golden uncontrolled enfranchisement more than my dancing soul doth celebrate the feast of battle with mine adversary most mighty liege and my companion peers take from my mouth the wish of happy years as gentle and as jocundous suggest, go I to fight. Truth hath a quiet breast.
4: Farewell, my lord. Securely I espy virtue with valor couched in thy eye. Order the trial, Marshal, and begin.
6: Harry of Hereford, Lancaster, and Derby, receive thy lance, and God defend the right.
2: Strong as a tower in hope, I cry amen. Go bear this lance to Thomas, Duke of Norfolk.
3: Henry of Hereford, Lancaster, and Derby, stands here for God, his sovereign, and himself, on pain to be found false and recreant, to prove the Duke of Norfolk, Thomas Mowbray, a traitor to his king, his God, and him, and dares him to set forward to the fight.
9: Here standeth Thomas Mowbray, Duke of Norfolk, on pain to be found false and recreant, both to defend himself and to approve Henry of Hereford, Lancaster, and Derby, to God, his sovereign, and to him disloyal, courageously, and with a free desire, attending but the signal to begin.
6: Sound the trumpets and set forth combatants. Stay! The king hath thrown his warder down.
4: Let them lay by their helmets and their spears, and both return back to their chairs again. Withdraw with us and let the trumpets sound while we return these dukes what we decree.
0: So, doo 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 doo, a lot of uh, big old trumpet. <laughs>
4: Floris,
5: Floris. Puppet
0: action going on. Um, do we have any, any, any thoughts about the, what we just said? It's such a different, them saying goodbye to the people that they love has such a different tone to me than the, than the beginning of the scene. Um, it's yeah, the that's...
6: only human moment in the scene. <laughs> I
5: mean,
6: that's and that's nice. right, Ooh, like that's yeah. what we're tracking is, is human connection and family. Mm-hmm. And that is the only moment that is of real human genuineness in this whole. Like, I come and uh, challenge you. I think you're a horrible <laughs> person. I love my king. Can I kiss my king? Marshall <laughs> goes permission to kiss the king, and the king goes permission. Great, like it's bullshit. <laughs> it's all pageantry until yeah. the connection moments.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's also really interesting that that uh, Bolingbroke has that that long speech, it's all rhyming couplets, and then he gets to the part that's to his father, and it stops being in rhyming couplets. Like there's something much uh, that's not sing-songy anymore. It's, it's, it's really, it's, again, I, as you were saying, Zoe, earlier about the, the father-son connections in these plays, um, and as we're discovering in King John, the mother-son connections are sort of the most prominent ones in that in that play. There are three moms in that play, which is awesome. Always love it when there's three moms. Um, <laughs> it doesn't happen very often um, in a Shakespeare play where you have three maternal figures, um, but yeah, I, th- I think there's, it's it's kind of wonderful to me too that John of Gaunt in the first like is like, and I, I know I said an ambush, and I tried to kill you, but like, I did apologize, and I think you did forgive me, did you not? And, you know, in most productions, John of Gaunt will like nod his head, like, oh yes, I forgive you for trying to kill me. It's all good. But then it's like, then it's like here, Gaunt's like, kill him, kill him good. Like it's just amazing. It's like nothing is, you know, it's like it's so different than the the tone of the first scene oh yeah um kind of go
3: back to the emotionality of these goodbye speeches though it's really mm. interesting and it just kind of really juxtaposes you know this earnestness that we see here this might be the last thing these men say as far as they know and it just makes richard such a bitch for making this his entertainment you know (laughs) like really dude (laughs)
4: And especially for John of Gaunt, who, you know, could potentially be about to watch his son die in front of him. Right. Oh, no. Sorry, we we lost
0: you for a second there.
4: Me? Uh Yes. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Am I back?
0: Yes, you're back. We've got got her. (laughs)
4: Um, I was just saying, like, losing his son and, like, his lineage, because the play is so much about, you know, lineage and next and all of that. And, yeah, like, the weight of that And what you were saying Ari about um, the opportunity for what's public and what's private. I think especially Bolingbroke has a really great opportunity like to decide what's to Richard and what's to his father and you know what's to the room at large and and what you were saying about you know the rhyming suddenly turning off.
7: I think all of the
4: textual clues are just so (laughs) Awesome! <laughs> in this, Yay, in this text oh yeah. Clues. Uh,
2: I found. I found the line. The, um, remember, I was saying like the. Uh, do they know about the the banishment before they make them fight? So where yeah. where was the stage direction that you were talking about?
0: Just now, just where we stopped. While we just return these dukes, stopped. what we decree, and it says during a long flourish during which King Richard and his council withdraw to confer and then come forward
2: gotcha 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 yeah. okay because yeah because i found the line where he says the son is uh, is banished upon good advice and yes. he's like you you told me to banish him like why yeah. are you so sad like so i was wondering like yeah, okay that's where it comes in so it's prior to that he's like okay ready
0: to so, go
8: <laughs>
2: yeah yeah
0: yeah absolutely yeah. um yeah let's get to this this wonderful we're gonna get some incredible there's so much about peace versus war and in these plays and particularly uh, peace versus civil war, which is mainly what we're looking at for the first couple plays. Um, and I, I, I just love the, the images are so strong in this next speech that we're gonna get about war, frightening peace and peace having wanting to go and hide, which I, I love is such a beautiful image. <laughs> Long flourish.
4: Draw near and list what with our counsel we have done. For that our kingdom's earth should not be soiled with that dear blood which it hath fostered. And for our eyes do hate the dire aspect of civil wounds plowed up with neighbor's sword. And for we think the eagle-winged pride of sky-aspiring and ambitious thoughts with rival-hating envy set on you to wake our peace, which in our country's cradle draws the sweet infant breath of gentle sleep which so roused up with boisterous, untuned drums, with harsh, resounding trumpets, dreadful bray, and grating shock of wrathful iron arms, might from our quiet confines fright fair peace, and make us wade even in our kindred's blood. Therefore we banish you to our territories. You, Cousin Hereford, upon pain of life, till twice five summers have enriched our fields shall not regret our fair dominions but tread the stranger paths of banishment
2: you will be done this my comfort be that sun that warms you here shall shine on me and those his golden beams to you here to lent shall point on me and gild my banishment
4: norfolk for thee remains a heavier doom which I, with some unwillingness, pronounce. minute, the dateless limit of thy dear exile, the hopeless word of never to return, breathe I against thee upon pain of life. A heavy
3: sentence, my most sovereign liege, and all unlooked for from your Highness' mouth. A dearer merit not so deep a maim as to be cast forth in the common air have I deserved it at your Highness' hands. The language I have learned these forty years, my native English, now I must forgo. And now my tongue's use is to me no more than an unstringed viol or a harp, Or like a cunning instrument cased up, or, being open, put into his hands That knows no touch to tune the harmony. Within my mouth you have enjailed my tongue, Doubly portcullis with my teeth and lips, And dull unfeeling barren ignorance Is made my jailer to attend on me. I am too old to fawn upon a nurse, Too far in years to be a pupil now. What is thy sentence then but speechless death? Which robs my tongue from breathing native breath. I just and wanted to cool. point
0: out I think Mowbray has like the best images in this whole act. Oh, I yeah. love that it speech. So oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. It's <laughs> like and the import cullist here means like fortify. So I, I love this idea that you've you've jailed my tongue mm-hmm. and then you further fortified my, my my teeth and lips so that I'm completely I, I've become mute. Um, yeah. but yeah, I think it's, it's amazing. Like we had the, I was, I sort of, sometimes I'll, I'll track you guys. The, the geekness is out of control, but I will track how many images <laughs> appear in, uh, in, in scenes. And it's like the beginning of this scene, there's not a lot of, uh, the light green <laughs> squares around images. And then we get into this point and there's a lot of light green all of a sudden. Um, uh, which I, I think is is very telling, right? It's like the, the stakes become real in this moment when they're when they're banished. The the it's it becomes real. Well, and he dies within a year, so he's yeah. right to feel this way. Exactly, <laughs> poor exactly. guy. Exactly, but hey, you know what? He got to die in Venice, which is pretty cool. Like, That's true. you're gonna die it. anywhere. <laughs> I'd want to die in Venice. That, that sounds pretty nice.
1: Um, um, I mean, he's apparently forty, so you know, pretty.
9: Ancient.
0: (laughs) In this time, in this time period, right? Totally. Um, Resent
9: that remark. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: um, And again, here we're going to get another, yet another uh, form of the word "boot," uh, which here means uh, serves essentially. And I wish we got another, the, the sort of third and fourth meeting, third meaning booty, as in like treasure. <laughs> <laughs> and then fourth just being actual boots. <laughs> um, it would just be really cool if we got, but we will get boots at the end of the play. There's a whole thing where the Duke of York is like, give me my boots, which is a really fun moment. So we'll, we, we're going to work through all the meanings.
4: <laughs>
0: all right, let's, let's keep going.
4: It boots thee not to be compassionate. After our sentence, planing comes too late.
3: And thus I turn me from my country's light to dwell in solemn shades of endless night.
4: Return again and take an oath with thee. Lay on our royal sword your banished hands. Swear by the duty that you owe to God that we administer. You never shall, so help you, truth and God, embrace each other's, embrace each other's love in banishment. Nor never look upon each other's face, nor never write, regret, nor reconcile, meet to plot, contrive, or complot any ill, against us, our state, our subjects, or our land. I swear. And I to keep all this.
2: Norfolk, so far as to mine enemy. By this time, had the king permitted us, one of our souls had wandered in the air, banished this frail <laughs> sepulcher of our flesh, and as now our flesh is banished from this land. Confess thy treasons, ere thou fly the realm. Since thou hast far to go, bear not along the clogging burden of a guilty soul.
3: No, Bolingbroke, if ever I were traitor, my name be blotted from the book of life, and I from heaven banished as from hence. What thou art, God, thou and I do know. And all too soon I fear the king shall rue. Farewell, my liege, now no way can I stray, save back to England all the world's my way.
4: Uncle, even in the glasses of thine eyes I see thy grieved heart. Thy sad aspect hath from the number of his banished years plucked far away, sick spent, return with welcome home from banishment.
2: A long time lies in one little word, Four lagging winters and four wanton springs end in a word. Such is the breath of kings.
0: I just want to I point thank out, my lead. I'm so sorry, Bill. I just want to point no out problem. to me how that is like a foreshadow for me. It's almost like oh, Boeing yeah. Book is like, oh, to have that power, you oh, know, there, yeah. there's something very like whether it's subconscious or not, there's something like, wow, you can just, yeah. you can just speak time. And it makes it, you know, make it so, like, it's a very, like, I don't know. There's something, there's something incredible about Richard's control of time. Yeah.
5: (laughs) I'm
9: sorry.
0: Go ahead. Sorry to bring Star Trek in there. That's
9: okay. (laughs) I thank my liege that in regard of me, he shortens four years of my son's exile. But little advantage shall I reap thereby. For ere the six years that he hath to spend can change their moons and bring their times about, my oil-dried lamp and time-be-wasted light shall be extinct with age and endless night, my inch of taper will be burned and done, and blindfold death not let me see my son.
4: Why, uncle, thou hast many years to live.
9: But not a minute, king, that thou canst give. Shorten my days thou canst with sullen sorrow, And pluck nights from me, but not lend a morrow. Thou canst help time to furrow me with age, But stop to wrinkle in his pilgrimage. The word is current with him for my death, But dead thy kingdom cannot buy my breath.
4: is banished upon good advice, Whereto thy tongue a party verdict gave. Why at our justice seems thou then
9: to lower? Things sweet to taste prove indigestion sour. You urged me as a judge, but I had rather you had bid me argue like a father. Oh, had it been a stranger, not my child, to soothe his fault I should have been more mild. A partial slander sought I to avoid, and in the sentence my own life destroyed. Alas, I looked when some of you should say I was too strict to make mine own away. But you, but you gave leave to me, to my unwilling tongue against my will to do myself this wrong.
4: Cousin, farewell. And uncle bid him so. Six years we banish him and he shall go. Wonderful. Cousin?
1: I,
0: I, I just wanted to point out that this is going to be a, a, a recurring language play that Richard and Gaunt are going to have in act two. There's a lot of back and forth and taking on each other's uh, rhymes and completing each other's rhymes—that's um, going to keep happening in in Act Two. Oh, and and o Merle is just so just so we all are on the same pa- page because it's a very difficult a u m e r l Merle.
9: <laughs>
1: oh, that
0: Merle! Oh, that Merle! Oh, Merle!
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well, now in my head, I'm just Merle. Merle? I love it. Let's let's
0: just make it Merle. Why
1: not? All right. (laughs) Cousin, farewell. What presents must not know from where you do remain, let paper show.
6: My lord, no leave take I, for I will ride as far as land will let me by your side.
9: Oh, to what purpose dost thou hoard thy words, that thou returnst no greeting to thy friends? I
2: have too few to take my leave of you, when the tongue's office should be prodigal to breathe the abundant dolor of the heart.
9: But thy grief is thy absence for a time.
2: Joy absent, grief is present for that time.
9: What is six winters? They are quickly gone. And in
2: joy but grief makes one hour ten.
9: Call it a travel that thou takest for pleasure
2: heart will sigh when I miscall it so, Which finds it in enforced pilgrimage.
9: The sullen passage of thy weary steps Esteem as foil wherein thou art to set The precious jewel of thy home return.
2: Nay, rather every tedious stride I make Will but remember me what a deal of world I wander from the jewels that I love. Must I not serve a long apprenticehood To foreign passengers, and in the end Having my freedom boast of nothing else but that I was a journeyman to grief.
9: All places that the eye of heaven visits are to a wise man's ports and happy havens. Teach thy necessity to reason thus. There is no virtue like necessity. Think not the king did banish thee, but thou the king. Woe, doth the heaviest sit, where the it is but faintly born. Go, say I sent thee forth to purchase honor, and not the king exile thee. Or suppose devouring pestilence hangs in our clime and thou art flying to a fresher clime. Look what the whole soul holds dear, imagine it to lie that way thou goest, not whence thou comest. Suppose the singing birds, musicians, the grass wherein thou trips the present stewed, the flowers, fair ladies, thy steps no more than a delightful measure or a dance. For gnarling sorrow hath less power to bite the man that mocks it. At it and set it lights.
2: Who can hold a fire in his hand by thinking on the frosty Caucasus, or cloy the hungry edge of appetite by bare imagination of a feast, or hollow naked in December's snow by thinking on fantastic summer's heat? Oh no, the apprehension of the good gives the but the greater feeling to the worse. sorrow's tooth doth never rankle more Than when he bites but lanceth not the sword.
9: Come, come, my son. I'll bring thee on thy way. I thy youth and cause I would not stay. Then England's ground farewell.
2: Sweet soil adieu. My mother and my nurse that bears me yet. Where I wander, boast of this I can. Though banished. Yet a true-born Englishman.
0: I just think that the the Englishman being the most important thing for Bolingbroke is kind of funny. That is <laughs> the best thing one could be. Just a little little nationalism thrown in there at the end. Okay. Oh,
2: definitely. Shall
4: we move on? Oh, also, I just wanted to say that Gaunt's speech is so oh my god <laughs> Yeah, I think that I might mean, be one of
2: my more favorite ones.
4: He is just fire, isn't he?
9: <laughs> oh. oh, yeah. Supporting one of
4: musicians.
9: Uh, um, he he just got line... berating the king, saying that six years I'm going to be dead by then, and then he he's around and says, Oh, sticks in your hand. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Eight, you'll be... Oh,
2: that's yeah. fantastic. He's that first of... line that he has. Like yeah. in, in that speech it's just incredible. It's, mm. uh, it's
4: it's really touching. I don't know. I find uh, it really comforting. It's like a really hopeful, I don't know. Oh, yeah. Like, dad, like, yeah, even though he yeah. knows he's, you know, he'll be gone, he'll never get to see his son again. And that the last thing he says to him is very moving. Um also he's sort of like if Polonius weren't like a bumbling fool, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Accurate. The I, I love the the there is no virtue like necessity. I mean what a mm-hmm. it's it's a wonderful oh, yeah. it's it's kind mm-hmm. of a funny line too. There's something deeply ironic about it.
9: But I also like Bowling's reaction to it, it which is very yeah. pragmatic and down to earth and like mm-hmm. what are you talking about? Just, you know. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it like shut up, Dad. <laughs> it's gonna
5: suck. Yeah, it kind of reminds you. me of like when you're complaining, you want someone to complain with you, and then your yeah. dad's just like, no, we look on the happy side. And you're like, no, yeah. but I need you to, to say this sucks, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> Accurate. Oh my what God. A, <laughs> classic father son relationship, though, <laughs> just like, hey, oh, look yeah. on the bright side, son. And the son's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> It
6: does make it like you were talking about like what's public and what's private if that mm-hmm. interaction with uh with with gaunt and richard is private
0: mm. right
6: where gaunt says dude i'm gonna die
0: soon
6: yeah. you, you know and he <laughs> yeah. turns around and like oh don't worry son i'll see you so soon yeah, yeah. Soon.
0: absolutely yeah. oh yeah that's wonderful oh, my God. yeah Mm-hmm. Oh I think there's so many there's, mm, so many there's so many wonderful choices. That's that's actually why I love like big group scenes all the time, because it's like there's so many like who hears what? Does everyone hear all of it? Who hears, like does somebody hear a little bit of it? Um and what, what is the the effect on the whole the whole gang as it were?
4: We did observe. Cousin O'Merle. how far brought you High Herford on his way? I brought High Hereford, if you call him so,
1: but to the next highway, and there I left him.
4: And say, so, what store of parting tears were shed?
1: Face, none for me, except the northeast wind, which then blew bitterly against our faces, awakened the sleeping room, and so by chance did grace our hollow parting with a tear.
4: What said our cousin when you parted with him?
1: Farewell for my heart disdained that my tongue should so profane the word that taught me craft to counterfeit oppression of such grief that words seem buried in my sorrow's grave mary would the word farewell have lengthened hours and added years to his short banishment he should have had a volume of farewells but since it would
4: not he had none of me he is our cousin cousin but his doubt when time shall call him home from banishment whether our kinsmen come to see his friends Ourself and Bushy, Baggett here in green, observed his courtship to the common people. How he did seem to dive into their hearts with humble and familiar courtesy. But reverence he did throw away on knaves, wooing poor craftsmen with the craft of smiles and patient underbearing of his fortune as twere to banish their affects with him. Off goes his bonnet to an oyster wench. Brace of Draymond bid God speed him well and had the tribute of his supple knee with, thanks, my countrymen, my loving friends. Were our England reversion his, and he our subject's next degree in hope. Well, he is gone, and with him go these thoughts.
1: Now for the rebels which stand out in Ireland, expedient manage must be made, my liege. ere further leisure yield them further means for their advantage and your highness lost. I just
0: want to point out how funny it is how different Richard is with his good friends here yeah. <laughs> as to, yeah, he's just like, they're so mean. They're just like, all, you know, they're all just like, Oh God, did he make a big deal? Did he, what did he do? Oh, of course he did. You know? <laughs> like,
1: did he cry? Did, he cry? <laughs> yeah. did you cry?
0: It's like, it's so kind of bitchy. Like I just, I love it. It's, it's really funny. It's very petty. Um, <laughs> Then they're like, "Oh yeah, we've got a we've got a rebellion we got to deal with." So maybe we should talk about that, <laughs>
1: like <laughs> just like, "Hey, uh, also real business." But um, I also am really interested in the description here of uh, Bolingbroke as sort of somebody who's like in touch with the common people and admired mm-hmm. by them, um, because that's not that doesn't sound as much like the Bolingbroke that like I've gotten to know in you know the the Henry IV plays Mm -hmm. um he doesn't seem particularly uh concerned or in tune with the common people in later plays so I wonder if that's something he loses or is that Mm. just Richard's perception of him or is that something he has taken on intentionally to garner support and then kind of lets it go by the wayside later um I don't know
0: that's a wonderful wonderful observation because he has a whole speech where he talks about how Richard was always in view of all the common people and that he was like very removed and like no one knew who he was and every time (laughs) anyone saw him they were like who's that you know so I think there's definitely some revisionist history going on for him um, especially if we're getting you know if we're getting this report of him. Um, which we will get a repeat of this report when he becomes king uh, in Act Five. It
4: sounds so Hal, right? Yeah, wow. yeah, it sounds like <laughs> Hal. That's yeah. what it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so
1: right.
3: But and it's ben making Hal? me think too of Lady Percy's speech in Henry IV, Part Two. Mm-hmm. He had no legs at practice, not his gait and speaking thick, all that stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's
0: Hotspur too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, think- he made a he made an impression on people. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful, but but I think you have to give that
6: up to be king is the Mm. right
4: it's not kingly behavior. Right.
6: Yeah, exactly.
4: That's a great point. How does
6: the same thing, right? How does that whole
0: speech and makes that whole change? Mm -hmm. Mm. (laughs) And then you've got to you've got to lose touch with your constituents as soon as you're elected slash
1: Crowned. That's the smart way to avoid <laughs> uprising and revolutions. Let's <laughs> just demobilize everyone. Okay,
0: <laughs> um, <laughs> fun. So shall we get to these Irish wars? These, ugh, poor Ireland. They're just constantly yeah. under attack, aren't they? <laughs> like all these places. Oh,
4: God. <sighs> yep. Ourself in person to this war. And for our coffers, with too great a court and liberal largess are grown somewhat light, we are enforced to farm our royal realm, the revenue whereof we shall furnish us for our affairs in hand. If that comes short, our substitutes at home shall have blank charters, whereto, when they shall know what men are rich, they shall subscribe them for large sums of gold and send them after to supply our wants. For we will make for Ireland presently. Bushy, what news?
3: All well, john of gone is grievous sick, lo- sick, my lord, suddenly taken, and hath sent post haste to entreat your majesty to visit him. Where lies he? At Ely House.
4: Now put it, God, in the physician's mind to help him to his grave immediately. The lining <laughs> of his coffers shall make coats to deck our soldiers for these Irish wars. Come, gentlemen, let's all go visit him. Pray God we may make haste and come too late. <laughs>
0: Damn!
1: Damn, Richard! Like damn! Or should I say, Dick?
2: Damn, Dickie boy!
0: Oh my God! I always loved. I always loved that. It's because you think he's gonna be like all praying and like, oh, I hope God will
5: put him in his grave.
0: Like it's just so. It's such a funny turn of like turnaround. It's it's great.
3: This is, it's such a good example of the way that Shakespeare subverts your expectations. You know, initially you're like, oh, he's harmless. He's ineffectual, ineffectual, but whatever. And then here he's just like, good, <laughs> die. Because <laughs> I want your money. I Let want me spell out money.
1: my, like, <laughs> my my intentions here very clearly. <laughs> I love that, that he's so delicate
0: when it comes to, we're, we're low on cash. Like, he's like, our, our coffers are—they're grown somewhat light, as in like we're totally skint. We've got no money, but but yeah. it's it's so delicately done. And then he sort of has this—I mean, it's amazing. This is basically uh, what historians see as his really big first mistake was essentially imposing these huge taxes on the nobility that had much more. I mean, Gaunt was like the richest person in the kingdom, and so by by that being his sort of fatal bad chess move that he did uh, to take all of Gaunt's um, possessions and, and wealth. But that the, this, the blank charter thing, it's so weird that Shakespeare would mention this, but it was actually a very, a very big thing that Richard did that had a very profound effect on the kingdom and that oh, it's one of the reasons why a lot of nobles did not come to his side uh, when Bollingworth landed. Any uh, any other thoughts on on this final scene or or just the act in general before we we jump into uh, just going through it?
9: I just have to say I just love those names Bushy Baggot and Green. I mean, that sounds like a, a cheesy law firm or something.
1: <laughs> or like an indie folk rock band.
0: <laughs> like. I I always thought when for the Bushy Baggot and Green. Um, from uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox, you know, Boggett mm. and Bunsen Bean, one short, one fat, one lean, these horrible <laughs> crooks so different in looks were nonetheless equally mean. Cause it totally <laughs> works for Bushy and Baggett and Green. Like, yeah, it, yeah. the rhyme still works. Um,
7: so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>